Let me uh, start by asking, what is a bad habit that you just cannot shake? Maybe nail-biting, any nail-biters in here? All right, got a couple. I was afraid you wouldn't be raising your hand. Um, maybe uh, overeating uh, or what? Caffeine. Caffeine. Is that a bad habit? I, I guess I needed to be instructed on that, but uh, yeah, maybe too much caffeine. I remember a time in college when I would go through a 12-cup pot of coffee in a day, every day. That was probably not recommended. Ian, what's your bad habit? Oh, okay, teasing your parents, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, there, are, there are other things. That perhaps it's uh, we worry too much. We have a negative thought life that we're trying to get out of. Perhaps any catastrophists in the, in the, uh, in the audience, in, in the congregation, catastrophist? Catastrophist is, you know, something bad happens, like someone doesn't call right away, and you're like, well, they're dead on the side of the road. Any catastrophists? Yeah, a couple catastrophists. Yes, that was. I grew up with a catastrophist, and so if I didn't, if I didn't call, I was dead on the side of the road, or you know, someone had. I was in California because someone had abducted me, and and so on. No, no, it's it doesn't happen like that. You know, we have these things, uh, and I, you know, I had a quick list. I had procrastination. That's I, I would say that's me, but I, uh, but uh, I'll get to it later. Um, Excessive screen time is a bad habit that perhaps we're trying to break. Um, Nail-biting, negative thought life, going to bed too late. Is that anyone that's... Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> Dave's pointing. Uh, that's... Uh, um, perhaps I should have included pointing out others' bad habits. Uh, overeating, not working out. Um, you know, there are all these things, and we have these bad habits, and then what happens when we actually do them And again? I should say again, because it is again when they have... What's our feeling when they, we get to the other side of that? Oh, man. I did it again. I did it again. I, you know, I, I told myself I was going to stop at one bag of chips, or um, one serving of chips. <laughs> I told myself I was going to get up out of bed and I was going to get to the gym, and now I feel crummy again. And that, I just can't break this cycle. I told myself I wasn't going to worry about this, and here I am, and I just can't stop. We feel like those things are just unavoidable. We feel powerless when we have those sorts of habits that, that we engage in, and then we're like, you know what, I did it again. I just wish I could stop. We have been talking over the course of however many weeks since we started uh, this year's narrative le lectionary, the, the program year, we have been talking about the uh, relationship between God and humanity and how since the fall we have been struggling with that relationship and we have struggled with sin. Now, some of you may say, I don't struggle with sin. I can sin anytime I want to. But we struggle with that because we know in the presence of a holy God that, that we, we don't measure up. And there are some things that we do that we say, I can't believe 
I did that again. I can't believe I went to that habit again. I can't believe I went to that hang-up again. I can't believe that, that I allowed myself to be hurt that way again. And, and we wonder how it is that we can get out of this because I feel, I know I feel that when I have been preparing these sermons, I've been thinking, how am I going to talk again without depressing people about the reality of sin and how it has separated us from God and how it damages our relationship with one another over and over again? It's important, but, but today is going to be a, a pivotal day in terms of our discussion of that. And we're going to be in Hosea. Hosea is 12 books before the New Testament. So if you're in the New Testament, you back up 12 books. It's, uh, it's after the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, Hosea is actually the first book in the 12 minor prophets. Um, and we're going to be in chapter 11. And Hosea is going to give us uh, some hope. It's going to give us tenderness. It's going to give us compassion in a way that I think we don't typically think about it when it comes to our relationship with God. And so I'd encourage you to, to take out your Bibles, open to Hosea, open to chapter 11, uh, and uh, let's take a look at what it is that we have here. If you're in Jonah, you have gone too far, and I'm trying to think of who it was. I looked it up who was prior to Daniel. Uh, so you're, we're in between Daniel and Jonah. So Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Hear God's word as I share it with you. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed the Baals and they burnt incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms, but they didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, I, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and, won't, will, they, uh, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I won't carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. This is God's word to us today. Let's pray. Lord, help us with your word. We are in Hosea, as you know, and, and we are in a section of Scripture that we are not the most familiar with, and so we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to open up your words, to help us to understand and to open our hearts to the message that you have of grace and compassion. Lord, we give you thanks that you don't leave us alone in these moments, but you do provide your Holy Spirit 
to strengthen us. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, and open our hearts to understand what it is that you have for us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. How many of you are familiar with Hosea, the book of Hosea? Uh, yeah, okay. It's bad when the pastors are like, uh, sort of. I remember taking something about that uh, years ago. Um, yeah, Hosea is not one of those books that we open to very often. We are working our way through the Old Testament as we uh, approach Advent, and I'm going to use that word without shame now for the coming weeks because we are approaching Advent. And as we do that, we are working through the timeline of the kingdom. And we have, we have talked about the period of the judges, and we have moved through the period of the United Kingdom when David ruled over both and when Solomon ruled over both the northern and the southern tribes. And we have gotten to the split of the kingdom when the northern tribe had separated from the, the lower ten. Excuse me for one second. Thank you. Thank you. Keep those blessings coming. And... And the northern tribe, the northern ten, broke away, and they went into apostasy. They, they turned away from God, and, and what has happened over time is that as the economic prosperity of the north increased, the religious poverty of the north also increased. So as uh, under Jeroboam II, the, who was one of the kings of Israel, as, that, as he increased the prosperity of the kingdom, the people fell more and more into idolatry. He fe- they fell more and more into not trusting God. Until the point in, in which uh, you might imagine the, there was huge economic disparity. There were people who were being taken advantage of. Uh, at one point in the northern kingdom, there was child sacrifice to Molech, one of the, the foreign gods. There's syncretism. Syncretism is when you start acting like the cultures around you and you start adopting their ways and replacing yours with theirs. And this has gone on for a number of years, and we are in the 700s B.C., the 8th century B.C., and Hosea is raised up as a prophet. And they, I asked this in Sunday school if they, they knew what the major image was in Hosea. Hosea had a very, very interesting task from God, and one that you go, wait, what? But Hosea was called by God to marry Gomer, a well-known prostitute, and to remain faithful to her even as she did not remain faithful to him. And that marriage was a a living example of the state of things between God and the people of Israel because they had gone and they were wayward and they were adulterous in their relationship with God. And yet God is remaining faithful And what we're going to see in this passage, and what what I want us to understand as we talk about sin and as we talk about waywardness, is that God's compassion controls His wrath. God's compassion controls His wrath. And as we talk about that, the, the things that I want you to notice is, one, how we become stuck in sin, two, why we are afraid then, and three, why we can ultimately trust God. 
So God's compassion controls his wrath, and we're going to see how we become stuck in sin, stuck in sin, why we're afraid, and why ultimately we can trust in God. Like I said, this is a confusing passage. If we're looking at it, people would turn to other gods, and God is wondering out loud and to the people what he is going to do with their waywardness. He is wondering what he is going to do. Ephraim is another name for Israel. God seems to be using this because the name Ephraim actually means double fruitfulness. Israel means he struggles or he struggles with Yahweh. And uh, Ephraim means double fruitfulness. It's, It's a name of God that indicates that this is a blessed people. This is a loved people. And so uh, Israel gets called Ephraim throughout here to remind them of who they are. As we look through the passage, two other names that that you may not recognize are Adma and Seboim. Those are two of the cities that got destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. They were two of the five cities on the plain uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so they were Uh, wiped out with Sodom and Gomorrah, though it's going to help us to understand. But the the people are struggling with their their waywardness. And it's very, very interesting because as God is describing their situation, you know, God had called them out of Israel. God had called them out of slavery. And yet what God says here is that the, the Israelites, despite what is Egypt had meant for them, they desire to go back. They desire to, to return to their old ways. They desire to return to Egypt. We hear this in the beginning verses, 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. And then again in verse 5, will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? You know, Israel, or Egypt meant slavery and oppression. Egypt was a, a symbol in the history of Israel of all that could go wrong, of a life that was not their own, of a life that was, that was marked by other people ruling over them and of them being exploited. And yet, as they, they tried to govern themselves, as they tried to achieve independence themselves, as they tried to mark out their own way, they desired to make a political alliance with Egypt. They turned to Egypt. They turned to Pharaoh to try to secure their independence, forgetting entirely what happened the last time that they were under Pharaoh. They desired to to rule themselves and they would go to anyone but God to achieve this. And God kind of says in there that, you know, you're you're turning to Egypt. You you think that Egypt is going to secure your your future better than I can. So you know what? I'm not even going to let you turn to Egypt. I'm going to make you turn to Assyria, and I'm going to have Assyria rule over you. 
Assyria was even worse than Egypt. Egypt at least let them stay as a nation. Assyria would go in and they would deport most of the people and bring other people in. It was called population shifting. And they would destroy the people of the northern ten tribes as a national entity. But yet the people looked for an alliance wherever they could without ever talking, without ever turning to God and trusting in His promise. God says it in here. I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who rescued you from slavery. I'm the one who rescued you from oppression. I'm the one who called you out. I lifted you up by the arms. Have you ever lifted a child up after they have fallen on the ground and their, their knees are skinned and bloody, and you're the one that lifts them up? And God said, that's what I did for you, Israel. And you ran off, never noticing who it was that held you. <clears throat> Such a powerful, powerful image. And one that I'm sure that we wish we could say wasn't ours as well, but our tendency is turn, to turn back to our own ways as well, to, to turn to sin. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought about the fact that, you know, uh, the ways that we turn and how we learn good and bad, you know, how many of you have, uh, how many of us here have taught a child to, to share and have taught that, that, you know, you should share? How many of us have taught children to, to take turns and to, 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 help others to, to be a part of the action. How many of us have taught someone, not just a child, but anyone to listen better, to be a good listener, and to be intent on, on what the other person is, is saying? How many of us have taught someone to take responsibility for themselves? We try to do those things. We, we teach those things actively. They're things that we actively seek to cultivate in people. Now, how many of us have taught someone how to lie? How many of us had to teach our children how to lie? No. How many of us have had to teach someone how to shift responsibility? I didn't do it. How, how many of us have had to teach greed or malice? How many of us have had to teach someone how to desire more and more things? We haven't had to teach those things. They somehow come more naturally than the things that we want people to learn. Isn't it? I don't have to teach my child how to lie. I don't have to teach my child how to, how to, to shift blame. I don't have to teach anyone how to do those things. I didn't have to teach my students when I was a teacher, I didn't have to teach them how, how to say that it wasn't their fault that their homework didn't get done. It seems to come naturally. We seem to return to those things. When the pressure is on, we seem to turn to those things naturally, don't we? It's not very hard. And no one had to teach us that. Why is that? What is behind us? We have to remember that, that we are not unlike Israel. No one had to teach Israel. God didn't 
have to teach Israel how to follow foreign gods. God didn't have to teach Israel how to stray from him, and yet it happened, and we do the exact same thing. We forget that sin is a natural part of the world as it is right now. And we don't have to be taught those things. We get stuck in the cycle of sin. It becomes natural and we don't know how to get out of it because it becomes so natural. And, and so we, we are like the Israelites. We create our gods just out of the, the ideas of our age. Perhaps it's political ideologies, perhaps it's social ideologies, perhaps uh, we give preference uh, to this world while still holding God in our back pocket. Well, he's there in case I need him. But really, our natural tendency is to follow the sinful proclivities of our heart. You know, Jeremiah... Jeremiah, in his prophecy, talked about the heart, and he said, the the heart is above all things deceitful. Who can understand it? Our hearts are deceitful, and we get stuck into this pattern of sin. But that explains as well why then we become afraid of God, doesn't it? Because we don't like to be caught, we don't like to face the reality. We don't like to, 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 uh, we don't like to, to encounter our sinfulness up close. And despite the fact that we can be very, very emotional when it comes to things, uh, when it comes to fairness, we can be very, very rational. We can be very, very logical because we re- recognize that if God is perfectly holy and just, I am not. And so when it comes to deserving, deserving the love of God, we know very logically that we don't measure up. That's a painful, painful reality. If God is righteous and just and I'm a sinful person, I know I'm undeserving of God's love. Behind this passage in Hosea is actually a passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 Don't get too scared by this passage because we've all been there and this part of the law, thankfully, has been fulfilled by Christ. But if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son, just hear child in that, who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline them, his father and mother shall take hold of him. Bring him to the elders at the gate of the town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. You're laughing, but I haven't read the full passage yet. (laughs) Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Did you catch the fact that in this passage in Hosea, God is trying to wrestle with what to do with his wayward son? Ephraim, I was there for you. Ephraim, I I held you up. I called you out of Egypt. I loved you. I, I led you with 
cords of human tenderness and love. I was there for you, and every time I called to you, you ran away. Every time. Now what am I to do? Am I to, am I to lay you bare like, like Admar? Am I to, 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 to level you out like Zeboim? Is that what I'm supposed to do? I have cared for you. And we know that the penalty for sin is death, and we know that we have messed it up. And if we don't, we're probably fairly deluded. And our response is not unlike Adam and Eve's when they first sinned. Adam and Eve ran and hid, and we do the same thing. Again, in 5, 6, and 7, uh, God talks about the way that they behave. God talks about the way that they run and they hide. He says, will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. They're determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I'm not going to exalt them. Even if we feel like there are things in our lives that we can justify, listen, you don't understand the circumstances. Listen, you, don't, you weren't there in the situation. This happened and then this happened and it didn't. It wasn't my fault. Even if we're able to do that for most things, when we come and we encounter the holy, when we are in the presence of the holy of holies, of, the, of God Almighty, we understand that our excuses fall flat. And we recognize that we deserve death in the face of holiness. Who here can claim that they have been perfect? I'd love to meet you. Yet that's not the reality of who we are. The Israelites knew this too. And here's the problem, and here's what gets us to our our final point here about, about why we can trust God. We're afraid because we know what we deserve. We're not afraid because we don't know. We're not afraid because we're ignorant. We are afraid because we do know that in the presence of holiness, we fall short. So why can we trust God? Why? We don't know how to integrate the love of God into our thinking. But God reveals this in Hosea. All right, quick physics lesson. Newton's laws of motion. An object in motion will stay in motion unless acted on by an... All right! Wow, you know Newton better than you know Hosea. All right. An object in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. Think of that, hold that in your brain for just a second. And when we think about God, we think about his wrath. When we think about our sinfulness, we can think about his wrath. But did you hear the tenderness that came through in these passages? When, from the very beginning of this passage, we hear the tenderness of God. While, while Ephraim was in Egypt, 
I called my son. Did, did you hear the tenderness that, that while you were in slavery, when, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and, I call, and out of Egypt I called my son. In verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. They didn't realize it was I who healed them, cleaning up those scrapes and burns on the, on the knees. And then verse 8 and 9, you hear it painfully. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Actually, literally means warmed. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. When we think about God, we have a conception that God's wrath is an integral part of who God is. God's, God's wrath is born out of God's justice, and we want to believe that God is a fully just being, fully righteous. But what we forget in those moments is that God's compassion is just as powerful and just as eternal as his wrath, as his justice. That from the very beginning, God's compassion has been there. God has not been waiting for us there, has not been just sitting there waiting for us to mess up. But God has been waiting in compassion. And and did you notice that While God's wrath sounds like a fierce fire, my fierce anger, a raging inferno, the reason I brought out the fact that that kindle or aroused means warmed is the fact that it is this compassion that is just warmed that controls the raging inferno of God's wrath. God's compassion controls God's wrath. And yet, if I were to say, how would you feel if God appeared right here in our midst? Yikes. That would be our reaction, wouldn't it? Because the reality of God's wrath is more real to us than the reality of God's compassion. And yet, God's compassion is the controlling force in God's righteousness. We don't think about that, and yet God demonstrates it here in Hosea. Am I going to wipe out Israel? Am I going to wipe out my beloved child? Now, God's wrath, God's justice cannot be delayed forever. We need to recognize that. God isn't just going to say, oh, I'm just going to wipe the slate clean. That's not righteous. That's not just, is it? But instead, we see, as we come up on Advent, we see what is happening in the coming of Jesus Christ. That instead of pouring out his wrath on us, on the beings who justly deserve it, on the imperfect and on the wayward, rebellious beings, God sends his own son that on the cross, 
the full wrath of God. Let this cup pass from me, and yet it doesn't. The full wrath of God is poured out on Jesus in our place. So that the wrath of God is satisfied while the, com- the compassion of God has controlled it so that we can enjoy the redemption that comes through Jesus. That's the, that's the warmth and that's the kindness and tenderness of this passage of Hosea. A few weeks ago, we talked in terms of application about intentionally including God in our decision-making as we talked about David. Last week, I asked you to consider the state of your heart with respect to God. I talked about those four uh, places on the continuum, opposition, indifference, tacit assent, and surrender. Here's the application for this week. Will you trust and will you receive the compassion of God just as powerfully as you understand His wrath? Like we talked about, our sin is a cycle that we can't get ourselves out of. We can think of ourselves as okay, but in the presence of the holy, we know that we're anything but okay. And so we need that outside force. Going back to Newton. We need that outside force to come in and to act on our lives, and that's what happens in Jesus. We needed something or someone to act in our life. What is it that you feel God's compassion and faithfulness isn't enough to overcome? What is it that you have wondered in your life, will God actually forgive me for this because I keep going back to it? I keep failing. Where do you need to know that God's compassion is just as powerful and not just that, but controls His wrath? Consider that this week and surrender to God those areas where you would be afraid of his wrath and have never considered his compassion in your life. God's compassion controls his wrath. And as we see in in Hosea, he shows himself to be eternally compassionate, loving, caring, desirous of a relationship with each one of us. Let's pray. Lord, words fail in describing how faithful you are. We try and we try, but there's just nothing to describe your goodness. And Show us this week as we consider your words, show us your compassion in our lives so that we can trust you more and more, knowing that your wrath is not just going to bubble over and, and, and consume us, but your compassion, the, the, the warmth of your compassion will control the raging inferno of your justice. Remind us of that as we go about our days, as we recognize our shortcomings, and as we trust more and more into your Son. We thank you that he took the wrath that we deserve and that you show us your compassion. Lord, we give you thanks in all things through Christ our Savior. Amen.